The thought that I have is so the fascism in the heart and so like somehow like revisionist history looking back you know everyone thinks um, that life is is all well and normal and all of a sudden this this wind of fascism starts blowing um, do you think like was that there like always it's always there and we just don't see it and that trump gave voice to something that was always present or do you think he somehow not only made it possible to give voice to it but then amplified it and made it take took it from like a moat and turned it into the beam so to speak well, he, Trump is actively using it, you know, like he's, it's almost like Trump has read this book or something, or the people behind Trump have read this book, you know. Like but he, in terms of zeitgeist, do you think he is actually taking, like, a drop of something and amplifying it and be making it into something? Like, that's the question I'm having. Is, is, is this something that we're seeing that's always been there and now they have a voice for it? Or do you think it's something that manifest like this is this mutual arising where here's the focal point and then here's the the displeasure and then we we're sharing this moment together and creating this consciousness fascist consciousness well i think it i i think it's always been there you know like he um like gas in the first like even before the book starts there's the uh the penance of passive and passive attitudes and emotions these are penance that he's made up for the his his party of disappointed people right and uh so that starts like it, it's uh, the emotions that he lists here um it seems like he the ones closer to the pole the the pole of the pennant are are how it sort of starts and then it gets it gets more and more focused towards the the uh point of the pennant right so it starts, one of them starts, the, the top pennant starts with envy and malice. Um, so it envy and malice first, and then the next la- layer is spite and uh, niggardliness, and then secretiveness, frigidity, resentment, long-suffering, and then, the, and then the point of it is bigotry. That all adds up to bigotry. So these things, these um, original emotions... Uh, envy and malice they start like they've always been there you know everybody has them but in that chapter where he's talking about the tut-tuts coming into his neighborhood he also talks about how their arrival sort of uh, allowed people to sort of externalize those emotions and say hey how are those people coming into our country that we've been in for generations and we consider ourselves true americans they're coming into our country and they're not trying to fit in they're doing their own business and having their own community 
And then they're succeeding at it, you know, they're doing well at it, they're doing better at it than we are, you know, as these white, hardworking Americans are, have been doing. But these, these people who are coming into our neighborhoods and like setting up their own thing and, and cooking their weird food and, and burning their weird smells and the, the inviting too many people around and the, there's like a, you get one family and then they expand, they have too many kids and then all these other people come in, like you hear that kind of thing all the time, you know. It's like this this externalization of these 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 feelings, these kind of passive attitudes, and it's all it's all people like you said, like like Gassa said, disappointed people, people who feel like they haven't succeeded in life, and instead of going into themselves and and thinking, um, where does this all come from, you know, blaming it on others, you know, blaming it on on outsiders, you know, and so it's like. Yeah, all you need is one person. It doesn't have to be a successful politician or anything else or a, like a uh, an evil person. Like Trump isn't necessarily, I don't think he's evil, you know, but he's just like, he, he he's aware of this, this kind of like uh, emotions and attitudes people have. And then he's using that to build up his base. Um, and I think that's a point that Gas is making, you know. That's it's kind of the scary the scary thing about it. So then then yeah then the second pennant on the bottom, it starts off with sullenness and jealousy and then sloth and churlishness, procrastination, hypocrisy, pettiness, self pity, and then it ends with vindictiveness. Yeah. So then vindictiveness is where it starts to get potentially violent. You know, but it starts with just sullenness and jealousy. And then stuff like sloth and procrastination. Like I'm, I'm guilty of a lot of these. You know, it's easy to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's that's a scary thing about this novel. Is it like it? It might, um, might not be Trump. You know, who 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 does it? Who takes it in the direction that Kohler wants to? And the the people, uh, the party for disappointed people, like. Like he says at one point, Kohler says at one point, like the Nazis were the pinnacle, but we're going to go further. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but, uh, but he's, he's talking about everybody is a potential uh, member of the, the people for disappointed people. Like he's talking about his students and looking out over his students and thinking this generation of students, um, they are not going to be as successful as their parents. Um, and then they're going to feel the same thing, the same kind of envy and jealousy and those things. And he, he's saying, yeah, they are all possible recruits for the people for disappointed people, uh, the party for disappointed people. Um, of course, bigots are and all, all kinds of people, you know, um, people who are left out. Um, and in, in the States, uh, recently, it's the, the people who are most left out are working class white people or they, they're the ones who feel most left out anyways um, I, I shouldn't say that I shouldn't say they're most left out because that's not that's not true like the, you get like, like black people all these other groups are I think we've had this conversation getting... before where we've talked about the difference between like uh, like uh, uh, like a social like so there's like economic conservative and um like what what how do we say that so more of like um 
the ethics, like an ethical conservative versus a fiscal conservative. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, and so, uh, I, I don't, yeah, um, in terms of dis- disappointed people, you know, that there's there's so interesting the divide between the red and the blue right now and and, and you know what what why are why are the red it, it's like tradition it's like so i guess that's the interesting thing like um the thing that i really think about right now is how if you have you're trying to have a conversation about reality with someone and you realize that they don't live in the same like my mother for instance does not live in the same world as I do anymore like we're yeah. in two yeah, yeah. entirely different worlds and so I, I can't even say something to her because we don't share the same reality yeah, and my mom so too. <laughs> and like uh, I can understand their point of view. I want. I. I can see why they're so angry that they're they're being left behind. This idea of what they think the country is is changing, and they don't want it to change. They want it to be the same, and so they're holding on for dear life. And we're just like the country is so divided as far as. Um, how you know how people think things should go? It, it's just it's it blows my mind. But then the 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 reality is that because of the way it's structured, so that minority can actually lord over the majority because of the electoral college, um, the way the Senate is devised, and now um, the Supreme Court. So really, really interesting times. Yeah, yeah. Just it seems very relevant this book for 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 right now. Like right at the front, even he's talking about the uh, the last Trump. You know, he says that right in the front. I'm trying to find the uh, trying to find the yeah, quote. Yeah, no, it's I right saw that beginning. too. Um, so it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's a sink hit. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like I'm sure if we talk to other people, that's why it would have been interesting to talk to other people in this, uh, in this in this book club that we've got. You know, like uh, different opinions on this. I'd like to hear them. Um, but but it's uh, also hard to talk about this stuff because yeah. there's just so much emotion, or and it's not emotion, but it's just. Uh, I don't even know what you know. It's like. <laughs> trying to argue for your reality but it's not even arguing for your reality it's just like uh if if you're existing in a world and and they don't understand you just can't reach each other you end up fighting yeah one of the most annoying things that i've noticed and i i I don't notice this so much as much with um like people that i talk to here in japan or even other foreigners that i talk to here in japan but if i talk to Americans or even now um, Canadians like my, my my mother and other people in Canada it's like it's way more polarized in North America you know so it's like if you if you believe in one thing it that means that you necessarily believe in bop, 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 you know you have you go down the list you know and then if you don't believe in that thing 
oh, this means that you all, you believe in this, 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 this. You're automatically pegged, you know. It's it's very hard to have a nuanced point of view about anything. Um, so that's uh, that's frustrating, you know. You don't find that as much in Japan. Like like just one issue, like say for example, vaccines, you know. In um, in the U.S., that's like a polarizing thing, you know. And and if you are against vaccines, normally you you also believe in this, this, this. And if you're against vaccines, it's the same thing, you know. Um, but in Japan, it's like people. It's not as polarized. It's like people realize that on both sides, if you have kids, especially, it's a hard choice one way or the other um, to vaccinate your kids. There's a, there's a chance that something's going to go wrong, a small chance on both sides, you know, and so people don't want to judge you for that, you know. Um, so people keep it; they don't they don't make it a political issue, you know. It's like a it's it's kind of a private thing that you don't and and doctors respect that as well, you know. Uh, so it's just that you don't have the you don't have this culture war that goes on in in Japan and other countries that you do now in North America. Um, it's the same thing with masks. Like in masks, like the whole issue of masks. People, people in Japan were, have been wearing masks for years and years now because they, a lot of people have allergies and and they've becoming more popular. Just the last few years, just people having colds. They don't want to spread it to other people and blah blah blah. And so all the time you you see people wearing masks. And so when this when the pandemic hit, it's like everybody started wearing masks, even though it's not. There's no, there's no law against that. Like, if you don't want to wear a mask, it's no problem. Um, but people just did it on their own, you know. If you, if you don't wear a mask, I, I, I almost never wear a mask. I almost never go out, but uh, I do go out all the time riding my bicycle. I never wear a mask there. Nobody looks at me weirdly or anything else, you know. It's like, a, um, so it's just not. It's it, those things aren't a big deal, you know. It's not. It's like. In the states, it seems like if you wear a mask, you're you're immediately affiliating yourself politically. If you don't wear a mask, you're doing the same, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, tell me about it. I live <laughs> I live uh, in Idaho City, and in Boise, um, everyone wears a mask. It's required. You go one suburb over, ten miles down the road, and it's a it's. Um, it's it's a political issue. They yeah. don't wear masks, and so like it's almost um, it's it's so bizarre that it became politicized. Like that thing became politicized because we have fights. It's a political thing. It's not it's not about the the thing itself, but the the thing what it stands for. And so yeah, like yeah, if you wear a mask, it's compliance automatically. Um, it's, it's impinging on your civil liberties, or it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It's it really seems like like yeah, like like Collar would if if he was around these days, he'd he'd incorporate masks or the absence of masks into the the PDP somehow. <laughs> 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 But uh, yeah, that's just um, just gets frustrating to talk about those those kind of things these days with people. Uh, but with yeah. uh, 
I don't know this book though. I think we should just get into it. Like we should just uh, do what you just did. Is is just to like I've got so many places where I've put a note on or something. You just randomly go through the book non-linearly and just read a little section and then try to tie things together. Um, like this, okay, here's a here's a thing related to what we were just talking about. Is this um, this character in history, I guess he's a real person, uh, Herschel Greenspan, or Greenspan. Do you remember him? Uh, no. Are, are we talking about Herschel, like the character Herschel? No, but it's got to be related. You know, it's got to be related. Uh, but this is an actual character. He's, I mean, an actual historical figure, I think. He was 17 years old. Um, and he ends up, and he's Jewish, right? Oh, yeah. He, Ends up, he's, he's, I guess he's homosexual too. He's having an affair with a top Nazi. Or, yeah, I don't even know if the guy's a Nazi. I think he, I think he is a Nazi. Like, it's right at the beginning of the whole Nazi movement, right? But uh, he ends up uh, um, killing this guy. And then uh, that is the event that leads to um, Kristallnacht. You know, it's like that that was the excuse that they needed, that the Nazis needed to launch Kristallnacht. And then and then uh, that which leads to their rise in, in power, you know. So there's this section like he uh, let me try to see this. OK. Uh, yeah. Ernst Ernst von Rath is the guy that he kills was not even a Hitler Nazi having joined the party before Hitler became prominent in it. As a son of an, art, an aristocrat, he cannot have been enamored of the little parvenu in, in any case. Nevertheless, he, became, he becomes a martyr to the cause he was killed to impede and to a cause he did not, with, with any enthusiasm, endorse. And then it says, Welcome to history, to incident and anecdote, chance and serendipity, to the country of the cruel joke. So all the way through, he's making comments on what is history, and history... History just ends up being these weird incidents, you, you know. Like, um, so it turns out in his study of this this guy Greenspan, it's just it, it's a lovers' quarrel basically. It's not uh, it's not anything political at all, you know. He just felt jealous for some reason. I forget. Um, like maybe maybe this guy von Rath was uh, was married or something. I forget what the circumstance was. Um, but just because of this lover's spat, uh, it it causes this massive historical event, you know, which leads to the the rise of the Nazis and World War II and everything else. Um, so history is a is a whole series of of accidents and chance and serendipity, you know, synchronicity. So, <laughs> there's a new podcast about 9/11 and. So I think it's it's trying to look back before next year's big anniversary, but apparently one like it places uh, like a really his important historical moment in in the foundation of uh, setting up this podcast, and and apparently Kiefer Sutherland was at this place where these 
FBI guys or cops or whatever surveilling this other guy, and Kiefer Sutherland is also there, and they make a big point of, you know, so he was in this big show about terrorism, twenty four, and I just thought that's so so funny that. They make a point of, of noting the synchronicity. It's like, this doesn't actually mean anything, but he was there too. And it's like... <laughs> well, that, that, that's, a, that's a big thing that he's making in, uh, well, all the way through in this book. It's like, what is history? And they come to the... Uh, well, he comes to the conclusion, it, history is what is written by historians. <laughs> you know? You know? And, and what goes into history? Like what, so historians are making a story of of what goes on that's history um so what goes into history anything could go into history like some some event like that Kiefer sutherland and 9-11 like it and if depends on who's writing it that it could end up being a major cause of 9-11 like like who knows in a like like we've been doing all the synchronicity, the sync stuff for the last um, like over ten years or whatever, right? But it's like, who knows if in the future that becomes the methodology of history somehow, you know? Um, and then all these things that 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 all these people, Jake Kotzes and, and others, end up being like major factors for things, and we have no idea about it, you know? It's like in in a, in twenty years or something, it's like. Uh, Maybe the the mainstream thinking on nine eleven is that a stargate opened. <laughs> like we, we we don't know about this, you know. It, it it's all what goes into the the story, um, and it's all kind of arbitrary. Um, so then then in um, this book you have Kohler, and then you have these four other professors sort of around him, you know, his colleagues. Um, do you, do you want to get into that? I, I, do you want to do you want to introduce those guys? Sure, but I at one point you were wondering if they were real, and I thought, oh, they've got to be real. But then it seems like when he's on trial or in his in the, in the hearing, yeah, like I just don't know if any of them are real. Like you're saying, they're they're symbolic of different. Um, let's see if I can. I I, I think I, I think a, it's, a I thumbnail think of them. I think it's both. I think I think they are real, but also deeply deeply symbolic too. You know. Um. So his colleagues are Plan Man T, who is a positivist. Uh, Tommaso Governali, who's an operatic idealist. Yeah, he's kind of Walter, a romantic. Walter Herschel, who is the sounding board, a moderate, common-sense believer in truth facts and the value of narrative. And there's Culp, who is, who is a favorite of mine, um, who is a comic, compulsive punster, pursues popular culture, is irreverent, uses jokes to preserve himself from thought, heads a troop of Boy Scouts, is composing... A limerical, a limerical history of the human race, as well as a cycle of twenty limericks, each beginning with the same first line: "I once went to bed with a nun." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So those are the four, which is it's very interesting. 
um, who these four are. Like he, uh, okay, so this is a this is a theory that I have. I don't, I haven't read this anywhere, um, but I think this is true. Like um, these four also represent the the four old men of Finnegan's Wake, and he directly. Um, Gas is directly referring to it, or Collar directly refers to these guys, um, linking them to the four evangelists. And in Finnegan's Wake, these four old men are linked to the evangelists as well. In Finnegan's Wake, together they're called Mama Lujo, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so I and and that um, these four uh, Mama Lujo, these four evangelists are through Joyce and Finnegan's Wake linked up to this whole huge series of correspondences of of quaternities, which are also linked up further back to Blake's four Zoas, you know, um, of his his um, kind of poetic mythology. Uh, so I think it's a massive... I, I think, actually, if we dig into the tunnel, you know, like it seems straightforward, but there's so much else going on with it, you know, like the guy, but he took like 25 years to write it. Gas did. And I, I think that the, the, Oh, go ahead. So I was going to say it's 26 or 30 years is what I'm reading. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they, to just as a comparison, like Joyce only, like it only took Joyce 17 years to wait to write Finnegan's wake, you know? So it's like, uh, <laughs> it's even longer. So I think there's 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 a surface level of the tunnel, and then it gets deeper, deeper, deeper into it. And uh, so I think on one level, those four represent some huge thing. And then you have so then you have Kohler and his wife, and his wife is described as this kind of like uh, prehistoric goddess, like a primordial mother goddess kind of thing you know and she's got she's even got the build for it and he describes her as that a few times throughout the book you know and then you've got him and then two boys you know so you've got him as hce in finnegan's wake and then you've got martha as alp and then the two boys as shem and sean um carl is one of the sons who is definitely a kind of Sean character, it seems like. And then the other one, he doesn't even mention his name all the way through. So it's described as like two boys. I don't even know if they're two twins. I guess they're not twins. But Do you similar. know why? I think I think she named the second boy Adolf. Yeah, yeah, that's what because... I think too. Yeah, that's what I think too. Um, so he, yeah, he doesn't, he but doesn't know. I, I couldn't tell if there was a joke or like a... Like she's I, I, so angry that what he loves the most, I'm gonna name your son after what you love the most. Yeah, he out of spite she calls him Adolf, and then he refuses even to mention his name. But it seems like he doesn't even wanna, he, he doesn't want anything to do with him. Like he's he's the he's the dark son, you know. Um, like he'll he'll talk about Carl and he'll he'll criticize Carl too. Like he criticizes both of them, but. Uh, but this other one, he doesn't even mention or have anything. Like he's always saying, "Carl's sibling." <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so it just seems it seems perfectly aligned in that way with Finnegan's Wake, you know. And there are certain dead references to to the wake throughout it, you know. Like there's there's a few things where he's he's describing his um uh, 
Oh, he's talking about Anna, Anna Livia, like that section on on rivers. Oh, that's you're asking me before about my favorite section. That's probably one of my favorite sections on rivers, where he's uh, or do rivers, yeah, do rivers. You know, he's just sitting with his uh, his lover Lou, and then just tracing rivers on her back all the way down her back and her legs. Oh, do rivers, yeah. right? And that's now. And so he's so like this. The, the, it's tricky because there's Lou and there's Zuzu, and Zuzu I think is like a Susu. Susu was a like a a German gypsy girlfriend who ended up being killed by the Nazis. Yeah, and there's some there's some suggestion that she was a collaborator too. Like she was she turned in a lot of Jews to the Nazis before they found out she was a gypsy, and killed her as well. Yeah, and so this was like a lover when he was a younger, when he was young and studying in Germany in the 30s. And then when Louis, when does she pop up? Like when he's writing Guilt and Innocence, right? Yeah, yeah, so he's already been writing it. Um, so, But well before he starts um, this book, The Tunnel, you know? Yeah. So, So it seems like... I don't know. It just—it seems like they were really together one month, like in August, sometime, where they were together all the time. And then basically, she she ditched him because she thought he, he, she was terrified of his mind. Like he opens up to her about his ideas, and then uh, she becomes terrified of that and and kind of runs away. Yeah. Uh, but I just I was going to re- read this section. This is a great, on the Dew Rivers part. So it says, Humbly dumbly only to wash up, washed up, beached. But there were mostly banks to rivers, where Anna Olivia flopped her sheets upon the rocks, and the rivers wound themselves through silence since Lou was fast slipping into sleep, even when their names were whispered. Because you can't draw a name out over an entire route a whole body's passage. There'd sometimes be a sound of sighing, of course, never total silence. What is that? There would be a breathing, a line to it, parallel to the passage of the water. Airlines, yes, and on each wrist a, f- a very faint ticking or the deep creak of a bedspring as a body shifts, even possibly out of doors. At a great distance, the horn of a car can be heard, also commonplace, while I lie in, in my rapture body light as as a bug's case, rising only to river at Lou's command and drawing flowcharts like the flight of paths of thoughts through the dark. Is this really the stream of consciousness that we've heard so much about? Uh, and then he says, the bladder's music. Like he gets into dark things. What a relief it is to piss after a beery day. <laughs> but it, it, that part is beautiful. Like this whole section is, is is beautiful, and you see that there is so much beauty in inside of him. Like he's like he keeps going on. His favorite his favorite writer is is Rilke, you know. And Rilke's stuff is just yeah. It's just it's all about uh, beauty, you know. Being able being open to beauty. Um. So that that's another huge theme in a, in this book. It's like, what is history? And then you've got all those four who are the historians, same as in Finnegan's Wake, the, the, the historians. And then uh, 
but then so there are different views of history but then there's the opposition of history and poetry what's history and what's poetry and then uh oh, we missed all of the poetry so he wanted to be a poet as a young man why did he why did he not he, just um his uh his he talks about all the disappointment with his his parents you know and then it seems like he's uh he's confused he he um he thinks in a way that history is poetry at the beginning and he gets sort of swept along with it and then he towards the end he realizes yeah it's he lost out he should have been a poet and he became a historian um and that's part of his his frustration is the frustration of uh of somebody who wanted really their calling was to be a poet and then and then he uh and then he lost it you know but he comes back to poetry in the end you know like uh, all that there's huge sections in the end where he talks about the difference between poetry and, and history, which is like, uh, um, so this part right at the end, it's like, so I was slow to realize how poetry created a permanent and universal present, like a freeze in, of stone, and was therefore what any one of us might see and feel who followed its lines and felt its forms. It was the oil for all ills. Didn't the poets claim the salt of sadness in every tear, artful fence for the stolen kiss. Poetry was not really what stood in front of your eye, like a palace guard, for poetry believes in nothing but the reenactment of its rituals. It was those eyes, their pupiled core, the scene itself. True poems constitute kingdoms, kingdoms of lost, last lost and little things. The true poem is a community of words formed from the clutter of life, and by virtue of its ceremony, the true poem confers citizenship on all the modest terms which cover, for instance, a work-torn desk like mine with their concerns. And he gets into all these little things, car keys, copper coins, sulfur-colored, legal sheets, blah, blah, blah. You know? Another part, it's like, um, I didn't understand then that poetry was the inside of history, was the interior of the text, was the present alive and what had passed and what sustained itself through every change of tense. Um, so th that's the main difference, is that it, uh, yeah, poetry as the inside of history, as the, as the now of, of every moment, sort of uh, um, escaping, escaping time in a way, you know, where all these tiny little details of life take on so, such huge meaning. So I think it... It's kind of the frustration he has, you know. It's like, why does he want to burn it all down? Um, it's because he's he's missed his calling in a way. Yeah. What what was your your whole take on on the poetry side of it? Oh, you're just reminding me. So it's when I got through this, I had every intention of trying to go back through it a second time and I just didn't have any desire to but now you're reminding me of like the parts that I did like yeah yeah like yeah there's so much so much I liked it, like so much when, when parts like that came out it's like wow it's it shines a light on everything you know but then then he gets into darkness right away but uh, so that's what's so fascinating about this book is that I don't know 
like it can't be commercially successful because of the fact that the lens that we're looking through is so unfiltered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This goes back to what we were saying before. This is, I started to think of that too. Like with Ulysses, you read about um, like the inner stream of consciousness of of Bloom, Leopold Bloom, and also Stephen Dedalus as well, and then and then Molly Bloom at the end, and and so it becomes it becomes really intimate there as well, but it just shows you how how good those people are that even even when you get into the deepest thoughts and emotions and feelings of Leopold Bloom he's still such a sympathetic person you still have you still like him you know um whereas Kohler you can find things to like about him you know like these flashes of beauty that he has all the way through but it's like he's not really a likable person, you know. <laughs> so I, I started to think about myself. If I was able to record all my thoughts all the time, how likable would I be, you know? <laughs> well, uh, so especially like, so I've been like, when when he's like spinning out of control because he's he's irritated by his wife, and it just becomes it just becomes so ugly and mean, like. I under like it. It could be for anything. It's like I completely understand that kind of dark. Like I get that, mm-hmm. but yeah, I guess it's the difference between like you know, like when you're when you're fully in a moment and you're just so heated. The difference between being in the moment in your own head, like ready to clobber someone, versus like being able to you know, take a breath and step out and say, oh, this really is silly. Why was I willing to push the button over this? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, that's the thing. He doesn't. And so I can always just look at the way his his mind is and think I I completely understand, you know, and giggle a little bit. I get that. Um, It's almost like. I guess the the being able to look at your own darkness, like uh, so he he called Hitler the goat, like he's mm-hmm. the sin goat that everyone got to blame. The pea and goat. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why why did he call it that? Remind me. Uh, in 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 um, I was thinking that that's a reference from Infinite Jest. Uh, oh. Oh, prettiest, prettiest girl of all time. Right. <laughs> um, the, you know the sin, the sin goat for sure. That they, the evilest, go, evilest <laughs> guy of all time. <laughs> the, the, the ego. Yeah, the ego. <laughs> uh, yeah. But that's an interesting point. Is like why? Um, okay, yeah. Here's the big question: Is like. Why was he unable to write the introduction to his book? Like he, he describes it as an impossible task, and that's why he started to write the tunnel. That's why he started to dig the tunnel, because he couldn't write the introduction to his book. But why, why couldn't he? Well, is it... I don't know if this is answerable, but um, like you were saying, history is... Is what the historian says. Mm-hmm. 
and he really hadn't dealt with, with his own history. Yeah, yeah, that could be a big thing. Like the like the surface answer is that um, the contents of the book were so controversial that he knew he was going to get huge flack from it. He well, it had, sounds like he had already gotten flack for his first book too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it sounds like his career, uh, well, according to Plan Mentee, was it seems like Kohler's career was on the rocks, anyways, because of all these women in his classes complaining that he had harassed them. Um, and and other things like he was he was mentoring graduate students who were coming up with thesis topics that that seemed a bit fascist in content or or something, you know. Um, like all yeah, these things. Yeah, there was the one guy. They were so worried about that one guy's thesis topic. Yeah, he was going to write on um, Anuncio. Uh, Denunzio? Denunzio, yeah, yeah. So he was. Do, have you read him or read about him? No. Yeah, he's an interesting character too. Like he was a. Uh, um, he's he's a novelist, and he was actually a big influence. Well, I don't know how big, but an influence on Joyce. Um, but he was kind of this proto-fascist kind of. This is this weird kind of overlap between all these um, individualist anarchists at that time. Um, we were talking about like in the twenties, um, after World War One, right after World War One. Um, this kind of overlap between these Sternerite, Max Stirner type individual individualist anarchists, and then these proto-fascists, and Denuncio turns into somebody like that, and he ends up taking over his this um, this part of the well, Italy at that time. You know, I think it's Croatia now, Fium, and he sets up his own kind of utopian republic for a while, and it attracts all these artists and and uh, bohemians and, and weirdos all across Europe for a while. Like, I think he declares music as his constitution for this Republic of Fium, I think it is. Um, and he, he ends up being an inspiration for uh, Mussolini for a time. Um, so he's his controversial figure to begin with. And then it seems like one of uh, Kohler's graduate students wants to use him as his thesis topic and then that doesn't fly with the rest of the faculty or at least with Plan Mentee. Um, and then Plan Mentee, okay, this is an interesting uh, tie-in to today too. So Plan Mentee is this um, archetypal liberal kind of rationalist, liberal, positivist, like you said, character, but obviously so messed up um, and hypocritical on his on his own, you know, and so this represents like the view of the PDP or the deplorables of today of the Democrats and the Democratic establishment and every and Hillary and everybody else, you know. It's like Obama. It's like yeah, these are the elite that they're reacting against, and what causes this kind of upwelling of the of the PDP. Um, like when 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 uh, when Hillary called Trump supporters the deplorables, Trump loved that. <laughs> 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 but then when Trump calls them deplorables, they don't they don't even they don't even 
flinch yet. Well, they accept it because that's who they are. Like they they uh, they are the disappointed people, you know. Um, so, but but uh, yeah. So Plan Mentee, that's him. You know that that represents that that whole faction of things, who these people are rightly rebelling against. You know, it's like uh, like that's that's wrong too. Yeah. yeah very like, timely. Like it seems like the most sympathetic uh, one of those professors is um, is Herschel. What what did you think about Herschel? I don't have it. I mean, so it, he goes into each of their bios, but I've forgotten. I don't remember him at all. Well, yeah, that's a part. That's a part of his character. Is he's so like, uh, he's so blasé. He just goes along. He he uh, he um, ends up. If you have if you have a discussion with Herschel, he'll just sort of agree with oh, you. Oh, that's Herschel. Yeah. Who's the guy? He's the one where he reiterates the point. Yeah, that's Herschel. Okay. And he just sort of subtly corrects you and keeps you from the extremes, but he uh, just sort of gets along, you know. He he tries to uh uh he he tries to hide basically. Like he um caller at one point he's he says when uh when he's trying to escape from people or trying to um, trying to hide or trying to uh, be inconspicuous, he he calls that movement a herselation. <laughs> like it's a herselation to try to <laughs> try to get out of the main scene yeah. of things, you know. <laughs> Whereas Culp, Culp and his limericks are just he. Culp is writing a, a like a history, like you said, a history of the world through limericks. But it's described in this as a revolutionary pro- uh, project, you know, um, taking history back for the people, you know. Um, anyone can write a limerick, you know. Limericks are supposed to be dirty and base and popular, you know. So he's that he he has his own project too, you know. It's kind of Culp is an interesting character. Well, the thing I want to know is, so I know that he composed bits and pieces of this over the years, and they published different parts of it. Like, um, when you work on something for 30 years, do you think, and I think he he definitely worked, like, like one line at a time. Like, it's po- poetry. It sounds mm-hmm. like poetry when it's read to you. Yeah. I just wonder, like, uh, when I've heard him... It seems like there is other forms that were more commercially viable, and that's you know where he would put his time at at times. Um, you mean with his other writing? Yeah, so like he was doing like essays would pay him more than say novels. Like this was kind of his tunnel project, you know. And, yeah, and, well, just. I mean, to spend so much time on it, but I think, like, where we ended up, like, this is, you know, his, he is modeling Joyce and really, you know, trying to put a world in there. Yeah, yeah. Which is really strange because he put our world in there. Yeah, he ends up doing that, yeah. 
or he, he foresees it, you know? Maybe it was easy to foresee. Like, maybe... Like I remember I remember in the 90s thinking, like, when I was hitchhiking across the States back and forth, and it's like thinking that things are going to blow even at that time, you know? But they didn't. But when, it when this landed, that was the end of the... No, when, when was the end of history? It seems like it, it was like the exact opposite of the moment when it arrived. Yeah, end of history was the end of the Soviet Union, right? So it'd be right. 91, 92. Where, oh. like, uh, right, it's just nothing but gravy from here on out. Until... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, he definitely realized that no, there's a lot of other things that have to be worked out first, you know. <laughs> like that's that's the thing. Like this is dealing with the shadow, you know. Like in 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 Jungian terms, it's like uh, um, the whole thing about the tunnel, and even the other books we read, like House of Leaves or whatever. It's like a it's it's the shadow that we deal we have to deal with, and it's like it's what's happening in the U.S. in general, and maybe the entire world. You know, I think it's hitting the U.S. harder because the U.S. is now the center of empire, you know. And so it's like, yeah, in order to get through this period, we've got to deal with the shadow, these these different um, these different schisms of the of the kind of national personality that have to come together. And before they come together, they, they're probably going to have to clash, you know. Um, so the whole thing, like, is it is it going to be civil war or is it going to be revolution or is it going to be... Uh, is, is it just going to pass this moment and go into something else or like um, but it definitely seems like in order to get to like we always talk about this 2012 moment you know um the shadow has to be dealt with first and that and then it that and it hasn't been dealt with at all you know? <laughs> So does Journey to the End of the Night somehow speak to this? I think it does. You know, like that's a that's a huge in, another big influence on on the, on on gas. Um, I haven't read it. Like I'm just I I want to get into that book because I'm gonna be reading it with some friends anyway. So it'd be nice to. And it's always one that I've I've wanted to read. Yeah, ends, ends up heard of it. So ends up being a huge influence on like Burroughs and Kerouac and all these guys as well. Um, and that's an interesting thing, too. It's like uh, gas. Let me look at this up just to make sure. Uh, yeah, so gas is born 1924. Kerouac was born 1922. So same generation as Kerouac, which is an interesting way to think about it, you know? Like it's kind of... it's. He's he's like a beat, you know. <laughs> he's a beat before. But is uh, he not? He's not a beat. He's just he was a square, probably maybe. At that time, yeah, I don't know enough about him. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, but but it's it's of the same generation, so he's got the same kind of background as these guys. Like Burroughs was older, but um, but he's got the same kind of literary influences, probably. Um, but that's yeah, it's an interesting way to place him. But yeah, so journey journey to the center of the night. It's a similar thing. He's not. He, yeah, it's supposed to be a kind of a uh, a darker take on things, mm. but not as not as claustrophobic as this book. I don't think. You know, it's more it's more open. He's on. He's 
he's traveling, he's going around the world, and he's, he's observing things about the world in a, in a kind of negative, pessimistic, cynical light, but at least he's out there. You know, it's not just... But then polar. he's got his shadow that he's dealing with, I think. Yeah, he's projecting the shadow onto the world. Well, there's but, another character that he's, like, coming into contact with. Yeah, yeah. But it, the character is himself or something? I don't know. I don't know enough about it. But, um, yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing with this book. There are other characters in the book, but it's not... Every every conversation that he's having with these characters are not live, you know? They're just happening in, in his memory, you know? So it's not even... You don't even find any quote quotations, I don't think, in the whole book, do you? Uh. <laughs> so... My experience with this was uh, I was just listening and there's times, I think you're right, but after I would listen, I had to go and look to see what was going on because, like, there's um, like, it's a lot of stuff going on in the text. Yeah. The font sizes and just... Uh, here's a wine glass on page 86, right? And there's a penis on page, uh, or which which page, uh, that's, you know. That's Yeah, that's in, uh, trying to find it as well. Yeah, penis, but I was penis you, you, sh- you, should, uh, you should describe the penis to our, our listeners. Do you know what page the penis is on? I'm flipping through. Oh, yeah, here it is, uh, 92. Yeah, and I, I say mine to hide the stubborn fact, the acrid irony, the unpalatable point, the mournful and bitter truth that they indeed are mine and I must consequently face and feel and fuck own up, my God, own up, own up, own up to them. My women belong to my faculties, each a separate specialty. And then you've got the balls. The two balls. Marty. Yeah. So this is, yeah. Marty and Lou. Yeah, just to just to tell people, just the whole thing is shaped. That that part that that you just read is the the penis part, and then the two balls. He's just and so it's shaped in the whole text is shaped penis shape on the page, and then there's two balls underneath it. Do you want do you want to read the balls? <laughs> Marty to perception to being there with such insistence, such aplomb. Even Martin, Marty Heidegger, could not explain her solid presence to me. Then Rue belongs to a bully's lust, a phallic pride, Plato's low soul. And Lou, to goo wallowy, romance and tender feeling, while Susu's impressive but imagines slit, grips my reason till it's fixed, cold, callous concepts grasp against their will and come. One ball always hangs a little lower than the other. <laughs> it's, like, it's like one. This ball is one line lower than the, the other ball. <laughs> he does a lot of alliteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he he talks about that. You remember he talks about that at the end when he's talking about his poetry, his failed poetry as a, of his youth, and saying in his poetry in his youth he tried all these alliterations 
but he would always he, he, would, he would always be at the wrong time you know like he'd uh he'd make all these s alliterations in a time when nothing sinister was happening or something like that you know um so he's always he's always making a mistake with it like it um yeah, we talk about it, and then I, I mean, I, I don't know. I was, I was ready to pitch it, I think, because so I went to that, that, um, that event, that free event that I shared, and they were talking about how the world needs, they need to read this, and I'm like, do they? <laughs> do they? <laughs> yeah, it's hard, you know. It's a hard, hard, hard read. Um. But I, yeah, I wonder what's going on in this text, though, because you you get to um, like you know all the tricky things that that we found in House of Leaves, you know, tricky things that he's doing with the the text and little puzzles and stuff all all through it. Um, so it doesn't really things like that don't really stick out in this book. But if you like, for example, if you go to page thirty three, you know, um. So, page thirty-three, right in the middle of the text, it says zero 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 thirty-three. So he's he he's corresponding the tag the pages in this document that he's writing with the actual page of the book. You know, so thirty this thirty-three is page thirty-three, and then you go to page forty, and there's a forty also there. So every so I I started to think that everything line like the, maybe the the num the page numbers also have a relevance like they do in House of Leaves you know like he designed it so that it has exactly 652 pages in it um, for some reason so there's all these all these kind of weird things like um uh, so if you go to page 628 um, so. Finnegan's Wake has exactly 628 pages, and and I think Joyce meant it to have that many pages as well. So um, Finnegan's Wake ends with a T, and it's he always talks about a T stain, and in this book also he mentions towards the end a T stain. You know, uh, yeah, it's right here. It says like uh, um, each word which names some quality or state of thing or thought or feeling. Oh, each, uh, oh yes, remaining indelible in its ink, for example, stain of tea. Oh, that's in small quotes. While shifting, and in bold, while shifting uh, location from soiled tie to spotted table, type to type, becoming coffee or cola, whatever spilled from the last gasp out of a glass in a loosened grip, and so on, yeah? And this is the part where he's talking about poetry. But... So, so Finnegan's Wake has the stain of tea. It's a tea stain, and it's that's a huge thing to get into with Finnegan's Wake. But if you look at page six twenty-eight and six twenty-seven, it's got this weird stain. I don't know what that is. This grid. It might be it's a, a cross- crossword puzzle. It is. It, it is, but it's like a weird thing. Like it's stained into the text somehow. You know, like how does it stain into the text like that? You know, this grid. So there's a weird stain right at the end of 620, 627, 628. That's right where the wake ends, you know? Like it, so it's kind of... Uh, like I, I wonder about that. Like I wonder all these things through it. Like there's another page. Uh, it's 
There's one really screwed up page. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. So, so that page was that was that page destroyed when um, when his wife dumped all the dirt onto his desk and his oh, manuscript. Maybe. But why that page? It came pretty early. Like, was he? Uh, I was I was just on that page. I don't know where it. And so there's things like that in this text that it makes me wonder how deep it goes like that. And then there's other parts, like we mentioned before, that the part where he's making his breakfast and stuff, that's obviously he's imitating the style of Joyce as Leopold Bloom in Ulysses. But there's another part um, where he's talking about the fugue. It's just called a fugue. And that's, that section is obviously Gertrude Stein. And Gas was a huge fan of Stein, you know, just the way it's written. Um, but I think if you went through this, I'm sure people have done this, you know, you can go through this and he's imitating different styles of writers all the way through, like from one section to the next section. Um, I, you know, I don't know if there's been tons of scholarship on this book. I mean, so like, it seems like... Uh, I mean, they're doing that symposium, but as far as, like, uh, it seems like it's just the beginning of, you know, these kind of inquiries. It seems like if if you if there were any young scholars out there needing <laughs> a project, you could be the, the foremost William Gass the Tunnel scholar. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, scholars are just... They're, they're like buzzards circling around different new areas to study. So I'm sure there's a bunch of people who have already tried to claim this territory. <laughs> I don't, it just doesn't seem like in it's it's interesting because in, you know, we do a, a fair amount of digging. Uh, ancillary to the books themselves as we're playing this game. And there's just not much like all the other books. There's just. There's just so much you can go and and dig so much, but with with gas, I found that there's not a ton of stuff on the internet necessarily. You know, I'm on uh, I'm on Google Scholar right now. I'm gonna look him up and see what's what we find on. Oh, Google Scholar! i that's because I only I only use Google Dilettante. Um. Yeah, there's some. Uh, postmodernizing the Holocaust, uh, into the tunnel readings. Um, oh, here we go. William Gass is the tunnel. The work in progress is a postmodern genre. Um, narrative as a technology of memory in William Gass is a tunnel. Uh, looks like there's some. Yeah, it goes on. Goes on for quite a while, but you're probably right, though. It hasn't. It, it's not as obvious as all the other things. Uh, Silverblatt has, an, has a paper on it. The tunnel, a small apartment in hell. <laughs> <laughs> Boring through the tunnel. Yeah, but these are all, uh, it looks like 94, 98, like not too many, too much recent stuff. Oh, here's one. Intertextual palette in William Gass's The Tunnel, Rilke's Literary Parallels in the Novel. Uh, but 
No, I, I, I don't even mean just as, as a kind of literary criticism. I, I just mean for, for our weird sync purposes, you know, like there's all kinds of weird shit, I think, that we could dig into here um, and tie into the other books that we've read. Um, like you were saying, you were making kind of connections between this and House of Leaves, yeah? Did, yeah. What, what kind of things were you thinking of? Well, textually, initially, but then the fact that it's underworld. So, like, uh, so our, our protagonist in, that was one of the problems we had with, um, or I had with House of Leaves, is how unlikable Johnny Truant was, but then he inter- he fully interrogated himself by going into his past and, and looking at his you know, he was facing his own shadow in that, which is kind of what um, Kohler's doing too. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, he's kind of um, Kohler's kind of like um, uh, what's his name from House of Leaves? The 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 professor Davidson? who's actually no, oh, no, the the uh, the other guy who's who's written the the story. I can't believe I, I'm forgetting this already. Um, the old guy, you know, the old guy who's who's actually writing the manuscript that that Johnny Truant finds. Uh, oh, Zampano. Yeah, 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 Zampano. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So Collar kind of is a Zampano character in a way. Somehow, Collar ends up being all the characters. Yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, yeah, so that's, like you were saying before, you, in this novel, and but they end up all being a part of Kohler, or Kohler, in a way, you know? Like, um, I, I was saying before about um, guilt and innocence, and then you have guilt as culp, culpability. Right. And then you have innocence, uh, Herschel, Herschel means a deer, and he's Jewish, and so he's a deer is a symbol of innocence, you know. So you have those two that really fit, and then you have, and then you have the other, those other two, Plan Mentee and Governale. It's kind of this, uh, this sort of objective view of history, positivist view of history, and then this really subjective look into history, like uh, Governale's really into, like even looking at conspiracy theories, um, and the kind of drama and opera of history. So these are all kind of sides of Kohler's character, and then uh, and then you have Mad Meg as well. He's sitting on the chair of Mad Meg. He's like uh, a kind of continuation of Mad Meg in a way. We didn't talk about the Bruegel painting either. Oh, yeah, go into that. Well, I mean, so it's just it's interesting that that was such an influence on. Uh, the over no, underworld. underworld. Yeah, all these books—they just bleed into each other. <laughs> um, but so, like, he's talking about Mad Meg, this professor, and I googled Mad Meg, and then there's a, a painting by Bruegel called about Dolgret or Mad Meg, and and then it's just. At some point, you know, the painting is referenced in the text and and described in some manner that, you know, whatever's... I, I forget the action that's 
taking place in the painting, but you know, there's this leader leading these people. But the leader is is um, like dressed in a, in a peculiar way, and yeah, she's like a like a kind of witch character almost, eh? Or like he he describes Mad Meg as kind of a witchy, like he has a witchy laugh kind of thing. Um. She could plunder in front of hell and return unscathed. They're yeah. looting. They're looting. So, like, there's something about history where, you know, there's this kind of ridiculousness about what history is, I guess. Maybe. Maybe. Um. Not, not like history in the sense of, like, what it is, but, like, uh, histori- what historians do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the kind of nuts and bolts of what is what is history as a uh, as a discipline or something. Yeah, but there was also like what when you were talking about the poetry section, you reminded me of that. But there was also like history as as um, someone who's trying to read the tracks, but they end up reading their own tracks because they're walking around in circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or they're just trying to. They're trying to fit their theories into history. Uh, sorry, the opposite. They're trying to fit history into their theories. And so they're not looking at actually what, what is happening. But then Kohler makes, makes the point that there's no way to know what really happens anyways, you know. But, but still these people try, like Plan Man T. He, he's, the, he's the plan man, you know. He, he likes his plans of history, his, his theories of history, you know. Um, so he's trying to, uh, like he's, he's got these set theories and he's trying to apply history, apply, sorry, the history, the theories to history. Um, so Kohler makes the same, same criticism against the Marxists too. Like the, the Marxists are trying to make a economic theories, a theory of history, and it just, it doesn't work. You have to, you're, you're cutting and pasting, right? <laughs> you're cherry picking everything. So, yeah, yeah okay. So here, here's the big thing that struck me: is history is the abyss of the doomed. You remember that line? No. What page? That, that comes at the beginning, somewhere near the beginning. Um, that's a that's a massive section, I think. You know, uh, let's try to find that again. Um, so he's talking about the abyss, that whole section where he's talking oh, about the, the abyss. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what is the abyss? Uh, the abyss is the total absence of any sort of meaning. And who are the doomed? The doomed are those people who have made a pact with the devil, right? To get some sort of power from things even though they know it's meaningless, right? But they get some sort of worldly power from it. And so <laughs> history is the abyss of the doomed. You know, it's just this... <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you get the sense that's what he's creating with the tunnel, with the actual tunnel, you know? It's, he's creating his own abyss. Oh, yeah, you were talking about page 174, um, oh yeah, the dirty page. Oh, except you know what? I think new double strong extra heavy bag, no double bagging needing. So like, 
I think like some of the the conceit is that maybe maybe he wrote that page on a crossword puzzle page of the newspaper or something. Like so this is leading me to believe maybe he wrote this page on a brown paper sack. Yeah, yeah. So the crossword thing, like maybe he like you spill something on a on the page underneath and then it stains the page that you have. So it's kind of that's that's why I thought about tea stain. If he's making that link, 